Well, we continue on through our sermon series in the book of Hebrews, focusing in on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 this morning. The author of Hebrews has been focused on endurance. He has been encouraging the readers. He's been encouraging us to, by faith, endure and not fall away. He completes this exhortation by using the metaphor of running a race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What comes to mind when you think of running a race with endurance? Maybe a five or 10 kilometer race represents endurance running to you. Maybe the pinnacle in your mind is the marathon, a 42 kilometer race fashioned after the mythically inspired route in Greece from Marathon to Athens. Well, as I discovered this week, there are races which make marathons look like a walk in the park. Marathon Handbook is an organization founded, in their words, to help people run far. Now, on their website, they list what are, in their estimation, the toughest endurance races in the world. And their number one hardest race in the world is the Marathon de Sable. And here is how the Marathon Handbook described that race. Marathon de Sable, French for Marathon of Sands, is roughly a 250-kilometer journey in seven days in the hot sands of the Saharan Desert. It is fully self-supported, meaning there are no race crews and you have to carry your supplies. You spend the night in communal goat hair Berber tents with no sides protecting you from the desert winds. And, of course, it is very hot. It reportedly gets to be more than 122 degrees Fahrenheit or 50 degrees Celsius. Combining the distance, the sand, the heat, the wind, and the weight of carrying your own supplies, the Marathon de Saab is undoubtedly one of the toughest foot races in the world. Now, that is a race that would need to be run with endurance. There would be no weekend warriors at that race. First of all, it takes a full week to do it. But there would also be no sprinters at that race. There would only be those who were very serious about running with endurance. And so let's, with that in mind, take a few minutes this morning to seriously consider the call of Hebrews to endure, and the call to run with endurance the race set before us. I'm going to read chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 again. I encourage you to open your Bibles, turn on your devices so that you can read along as I read aloud. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, despite the imperatives we get in this passage to 
look to Jesus and to consider Jesus, despite the warning against weights and against sin, and despite the rationale concerning this great cloud of witnesses, the main thrust of this passage is the exhortation to run with endurance the race set before us. And so we will consider the cloud of witnesses. We will consider weight and sin. We will consider looking to Jesus and considering Jesus. And we'll do so in light of this exhortation to run with endurance. Let's begin with the cloud of witnesses, verse 1a. The saints who have gone before us provide an encouragement for us to endure. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I think the author's goal is clear. He wants God's people to endure. And so he brings to bear on his listeners what he has just written about all through chapter 11. The point of that catalog of Old Testament saints who endured by faith was to encourage his readers, to encourage us to endure by faith. The author wants us to be aware of the saints of old who, through their successes and through their struggles, stayed the course and were commended by God. So clearly, our awareness of these saints is a benefit to us. The author uses the word witnesses and indicates that there is a multitude of individuals. He uses the word cloud, a great cloud in reference to them. Now that word that is translated cloud can be exactly that, a cloud in the sky. But it can also mean, and what it means here, is a large, dense multitude, a throng of people. Now the connection with the clouds in the sky becomes apparent when we understand this word denotes a a crowd so big that it is almost shapeless. It's, It's like vapor. It obscures our ability to count exactly how many people are there. Now in regards to the word witnesses, there are two types of witnesses the author could have in mind. One type of witness refers to someone who has seen something and therefore can testify to what they have seen. If someone witnesses a crime, they can testify to what they saw. But the second type of witnesses are those who can testify to something based on their own experience, on their own knowledge. And I think it's likely that the author of Hebrews meant both of these things, both of these examples of witnesses. In the second case, the witnesses are those who can testify to enduring by faith because they have been there and they have done that. Those are the saints that he's talked about. They have by faith endured. And so they have the expertise to testify on that point. However, this cloud are also presented as spectators, as those who are watching the saints who are alive, watching the people of God as they run the race. And we know that they're there to buoy us, to support us as they watch us. Now, I certainly think we are meant to consider the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before as a means of encouragement so that we might endure. We are to be encouraged 
by biblical saints who have endured. Biblical saints from the Old Testament as we see in Hebrews 11, but I think it extends actually to the entire history of God's people. It extends to the disciples of Jesus who have gone before us. It extends to those who aren't mentioned in the Bible who have gone before us. We are to look to God's people across the ages so that we might be encouraged to endure. John Piper, in an essay entitled Brothers, Read Christian Biography, begins his essay in the direct style he is famous for. Hebrews 11, he says, is a divine mandate to read Christian biography. And I think he's right. I think we should read Christian biographies. In an article on the benefits of reading Christian biographies at Christian publisher Banner of Truth's website, they list six benefits of reading Christian biographies. Let me go through them quickly for you. First, such reading sets before us a grand overview of the progress of the Christian church, a panorama of God's mighty acts in previous generations. That is, Christian biographies teach us about God's work in God's people on a large scale. The more we read, the more we understand about what God has done in his people over the years. A second advantage to be gained from Christian biography is the development of a deeper appreciation of the basic principles and progress of the spiritual life demonstrated in those about whom we read. In the stories of others, we learn practical living. We learn the how-to of the Christian faith. Thirdly, Christian biography serves to show us the outworking of faith in the experiences of widely differing individuals. They help us to see the works of God in the much smaller scale of the individual. And they help us to appreciate the diversity and the diverse ways that God sanctifies his people. Fourthly, Christian biography delivers warnings, signposts along the way of our race, dangers to be avoided, pitfalls that are awaiting the unwary. We can learn from the mistakes of others. The fifth benefit from Banner of Truth in regards to biographies is that we can glean how to suffer rightly. Learning how to navigate suffering faithfully is a large part of the Christian journey. And it's a large part of this section of Hebrews, as we well know. And biographies can be helpful in regards to that. The article finishes this way. A final benefit to be gained from reading of the lives of other believers, and one that overarches these individual aspects, is the facility it provides for tracking certain recurring principles and patterns of the activity of God repeated in every age. That is, biographies not only teach us about how God works, but with continued reading, we learn the patterns and the principles of his work in the midst of his people. And that starts with the Bible, of course, but goes on from there. I don't want to belabor the application. Simply, I encourage you to read Christian biographies. I think it's a wise and worthwhile endeavor. Point number two, weight and sin, verse 1b. There are burdens we bear which undermine our ability to endure. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race 
that is set before us. One of the regular practices of a football team is to watch game film in order to improve. Teams watch film of themselves practicing. Teams watch film of their opponents playing other opponents. And teams watch films of themselves playing opponents. Now, when a team watches film together, it's more than just an opportunity to learn. It's also an opportunity to laugh, to laugh at each other. There's a lot of good-natured teasing that occurs during a film session. And one particular scenario that regularly resulted in the, the teasing, the needling of each other, occurs when a ball carrier, usually a running back or a receiver, would be caught from behind by the defense. The ball carrier would be running out in front, perhaps looking like he might score a touchdown, but then the defense catches up to him and tackles him. And the refrain that would routinely be heard was, get the piano off your back. When the defenders caught the ball carrier from behind, the piano statement was made because it looked like the ball carrier was carrying a burden that made him slower than the defenders. And even coaches would get in on it. They would rewind the clip. They'd play it in slow motion. They'd say, let's see exactly when the piano landed on his back. The point was that running well requires a runner to be unimpeded, to be unburdened. Those burdens will slow you down. Now, the author of Hebrews indicates, practically speaking, that you need to be free of burdens so that you can run well. That's a principle for enduring. Now, the author has in mind two types of burdens which impede the runner of a race. The first is every weight which the runner is supposed to lay aside. Now, this is a very general admonition. The author is not being specific. If there is any weight which hampers or interferes with your running, get rid of it. These burdens could be good, they could be bad, they could be neither. But if they slow you down or deter you from continuing, get rid of them. Puritan John Owen has an interesting take on these weights that we must lay aside. He suggests they are weighty not because of their nature, because they are vanity. They are vain things. They're like mists and vapors. Owen says they have weight because we are constantly setting our hearts and affections on them. Those things that we set our hearts and affections on, which we ought not to become for us a weight. And so perhaps the question we need to ask of ourselves is, what things, good, bad, or indifferent, What things are inhibiting me from running well? What have I set my heart and my affections on that threatens my ability to endure, to run well? We should ask God to convict us of these things. And when we feel that pressure of God's spirit, let's lay them aside. I remember during the COVID pandemic, I had to lay aside watching the news. Now, watching the news isn't a bad thing necessarily, but during those days, it was a burdensome thing. It was impeding my running the race of a disciple of Jesus, and so I had to lay it aside. I had to stop watching the news. 
laying aside the things that encumber us could be a temporary thing or it could be a permanent thing or it's something that we may vacillate between. But we need to get those pianos off of our back. The second type of burden the author mentioned is the burden of sin that clings so tightly. Again, the author has been more specific than just a weight, but not overly specific. The word and grammar used for sin indicates that he's referring to all sins, any sinning. Every transgression threatens our ability to run with endurance. Brothers and sisters, we must do all we can to avoid sin. And when we do sin, we must confess it. We learn from the examples in chapter 11 that faith looks like living our life in a manner that pleases God. To endure by faith is to endure by obedience. We run well when we run righteously. However, we know that we will not want our race in perfect holiness. And so when we sin, let's confess our sin. Let's receive the forgiveness that Christ won for us in his death on the cross. And it is to Christ that the author turns to in verse 2. Point number three, looking to Jesus, verse 2. Looking to Jesus encourages and enables endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As the author brings home this long illustration of faith that endures and exhorts his readers to endure by faith, he has saved the best for last. We have looked at creation and God's people before the patriarchs. We have looked at the patriarchs themselves. We have looked at the generations before, during, and after the exodus. We've looked at judges and kings and prophets. We've looked at those who have performed great exploits and those who preserved through great hardship. Sorry, who persevered through great hardship. And now we look to Jesus. Looking to all of those other things utterly fails if it doesn't bring us to look to Jesus. Now the author indicates three ways, really, we are encouraged to endure. We are encouraged and enabled to endure when we look to Jesus as an example of faith. Example of faith that endures. We are encouraged and enabled to endure when we look to Jesus as the founder of faith that endures. And we are encouraged and enabled to endure when we look to Jesus as the perfecter of faith that endures. Let's start with that first one. We are encouraged and enabled to endure when we look to Jesus as the example of faith that endures. Jesus is the example par excellence when it comes to those who by faith endured. Jesus throughout his life and in his death and resurrection had an unrelenting inner sense of certainty and confidence that those things God had promised and that he desired would happen. 
Jesus' legacy is one of internal, firm, and fixed belief of things not seen, whether past or present or future. And so looking to Jesus as our example of faith that endures is how we are motivated and enabled to endure ourselves. We are also encouraged and enabled to endure when we look to Jesus as the founder of faith that endures. Jesus is the founder of our faith because he is the one who opened up the way to God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from God's people. We were strangers to the covenants. We were without hope and without God. But in God's mercy and love, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace we are saved through faith in Jesus. That's from Ephesians chapter 2. We have access to God. We can come boldly to God. We are saved through faith in Jesus. He's the founder of our faith. If you are here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, then perhaps you are here to learn a little bit more about Christianity. You are trying to figure out what this faith called Christianity is all about. Well, one thing you must understand is that Jesus is the founder of the Christian faith because we are saved by faith in Jesus. We are saved by believing and trusting that Jesus is the Son of God who became a man, that he might die for men, for their sins, so they could be forgiven. And you can, this very moment, avail yourself of God's salvation in Jesus Christ by putting your faith in him, and I encourage you to do so. Jesus is the founder of our faith because he made a way to God for sinful humans. We are also encouraged and enabled to endure when we look to Jesus as the perfecter of faith that endures. Jesus is not only our example of faith, he is not only the founder of faith, but he is the perfecter of faith. This word translated perfecter means one who brings something to a successful conclusion. Now we learned earlier in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 14, that by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus, by a single offering, has perfected, that is, he has removed sin, he has cleansed the conscience, he has gained access to God for his people, not just now, but for all time. So Jesus is also the perfecter of our faith, and we look to him. Now, before we get on to our last point, we must look into why Jesus endured the cross, because the author of Hebrews brings it up here. He, the author of Hebrews declares that it was for the joy set before him. Now, for a long time, I had a very self-centered understanding of that idea. I thought the joy that was set before Christ for which he endured the cross was me and was you. You were the joy. I was the joy. Now, that's partially true, but in all the wrong ways. 
See, that perspective makes much of me. That perspective makes much of you. It puts us at the center of everything. And that's not how this works. We are not the center. God is. The joy set before Jesus whereby he endured the cross and despised its shame was the glory of God. That was the joy set before him. Now, I think John Owen is right when he says that the joy which was set before him was the glory of God in the salvation of the church. But that order matters. The glory of God is primary. The glory of God is the primary joy of Jesus, and the salvation of the church is the secondary. God is at the center, not us. Looking to Jesus encourages and enables endurance because he is the example of faith that endures. He is the founder of faith that endures. He is the perfecter of faith that endures. So we must look to him if we are to endure. But we must not only look to Jesus, we must consider Jesus. Point number four, consider him, verse three. Considering Jesus prevents weariness and faint-heartedness. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The author called on the readers to look to Jesus, and now he calls on the readers to consider Jesus. Now, that word translated looking means to turn our eyes from one thing and fix them on something else. But the word consider means to reason with careful deliberation, which points to an amplification of this engagement with Jesus. We look to Jesus, we consider Jesus. We are to focus all our thoughts on him. We are to ponder how he endured and that we might be strengthened to endure and not fall away. And so as we come to the end of this sermon. I want us to consider Jesus, and I want us to consider him in regards to the heroes of faith and be strengthened to endure. So consider that Jesus is the true and better able, who didn't die because of his sacrifice, but died because he was the sacrifice. He is the true and better able because he too died innocently, And yet his blood cries out, not for condemnation, but for pardon. Jesus is the true and better Enoch, who was taken up not so that he should not see death, but he was taken up because of his death, which pleased God. Jesus is the true and better Noah, who didn't build an ark for the salvation of his household, but who himself was the ark when his suffering and his body became the vessel of salvation for all God's people. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who left his home with God to become an exile and a sojourner. He is the true and better Abraham not because a relative would bless the nations, but because he himself was the blessing to the nations. Jesus is the true and better Abraham because Though Abraham was almost dead, yet had many descendants, Jesus died and brings many sons to glory. 
Jesus is the true and better Abraham because he didn't offer his son as a sacrifice in obedience to God, but offered himself, the son, as a sacrifice in obedience to God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac because Jesus didn't figuratively die and figuratively rise from the dead, but actually died as a sacrifice for sin and was actually raised. Jesus is the true and better Isaac because whereas God provided a substitute sacrifice in the place of Isaac, Jesus was the substitute sacrifice in the place of all those who believe. Jesus is the true and better Jacob Not because he wrestled with God and was injured, but because he was smitten by God, even though he was innocent. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, because he wasn't renamed Israel, he is Israel. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who wasn't spared by his brothers, but he was killed by them who didn't forgive his brothers and save them from a famine, but forgives all men and saves them from their sins and from the devil and from the wrath of God. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who doesn't deliver the judgment of God, but receives it for his people. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who didn't choose to be mistreated with God's people, but was mistreated for God's people, who didn't keep the Passover, but was the Passover lamb. Jesus is the true and better Rahab because he didn't hide the enemy of his people that he might be spared by them later, but spared his own enemies and died in their place. Jesus is the true and better Gideon who never asked for a sign and faced the enemy, not with 300 others, but by himself. Jesus is the true and better Barak who didn't accomplish salvation hesitantly and only with help, but pursued salvation wholeheartedly, even though he was deserted by all. Jesus is the true and better Samson, whose victorious death didn't somewhat salvage a problematic life, but whose victorious death ended a perfect life, lived in complete obedience to God. Jesus is the true and better Jephthah, whose victory didn't come at the expense of his daughter's life, but at the expense of his own. Jesus is the true and better David, whose throne is forever. Jesus is the true and better David, who wins the victory, not through the shedding of other people's blood, but through the shedding of his own blood. Jesus is the true and better Samuel, who doesn't establish the monarchy, but rather as a monarch becomes a servant to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the true and better accomplisher of exploits, who through faith conquered the kingdom of darkness and overcame the world, who proclaimed justice to the Gentiles, who obtained promises because all God's promises are yes in him who stopped the mouth of the one who goes about like a roaring lion, who quenched the power of the fires of hell, who escaped the edge of the sword because he could call down more than 12 legions of angels, who was made strong in weakness, who became mighty in war, who put demon armies to flight, who gave women back their dead. And Jesus is the true and better sufferer of hardships, Because when he was tortured at the hands of the Romans, he refused to accept release. He opened not his mouth to defend himself. 
He suffered mocking and flogging and imprisonment. He wasn't stoned, and yet a stone covered his tomb. The tomb that he was placed in after being crucified. He wasn't sawn in two, but the veil of the temple was torn in two when the body of Jesus was broken. He wasn't killed with the sword, but he died upon the cross. And there they gambled for his clothes. He was destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains. Foxes had dens, but he had nowhere to lay his head, and his tomb was a cave in the earth. Brothers and sisters, when we consider Jesus, we see that he shines more gloriously than all the heroes of faith. He shines gloriously as an example. He shines gloriously as a founder. He shines gloriously as a perfecter. And he is our true hope for endurance. Now specifically, we're to consider Jesus in light of the hostility he faced from sinners. It is in the suffering of Jesus and our meditation thereon where we are most encouraged and most enabled to endure. I finish with the quotation that I have quoted most often in my sermons over the last seven years. It speaks of considering Jesus, considering him in his suffering. It comes from Octavius Winslow in his book, The Glory of the Redeemer. He writes, Place no limit on your knowledge of Christ. Ever consider that you have but read the preface to the volume. You have but touched the margin of the sea. Stretching far away beyond you are undiscovered beauties and precious views and sparkling glories, each encouraging your advance, inviting your research, and asking the homage of your faith, the tribute of your love, and the dedication of your life. You shall see greater things than you have yet seen. Greater depths of sin in your fallen nature shall be revealed. Deeper sense of the cleansing efficacy of the atoning blood shall be felt. Clearer views of your acceptance in the beloved. Greater discoveries of God's love. And greater depths of grace and glory in Jesus shall be enjoyed. That is how we endure. By looking and considering Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father. I pray that you would help us this morning. I pray, Father God, that you, by your Spirit, would help each one of us to endure. I pray, Father God, that you would help us. Help us to look to the saints who have gone before, that we might see their lives and be encouraged to endure. Help us, Father God, to unburden ourselves of weights, whether they be good or bad or indifferent. Help us to resist sin, and when we do sin, to confess it quickly and to find forgiveness so that we can run well. Most of all this morning, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would help us. Help us to look to Jesus. Help us to consider Jesus. For it's in him that we find the ability and the motivation to endure. Pray this in his name. Amen.